Good morning. <laughs> Psalm 139, 1 through 24. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden for you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The word of the Lord. A recent survey showed that 36% of all Americans uh, are suffering from serious loneliness. That, that includes 61% of young adults and 51% of mothers of young children. In England, uh, over the last few years, loneliness has gotten so bad that they actually created a whole new government position and appointed a minister for loneliness. And in Japan, just this past year, suicide rates have been rising so rapidly that they also appointed a minister for loneliness. In addition to depression, anxiety, and addiction, loneliness is one of the biggest health crises in our world right now. Not only is it a major cause of depression and anxiety, but it's also connected to things like heart disease, early mortality, and domestic abuse. But even just talking about it like this, in terms of um, statistics and clinical outcomes, it keeps us from looking at the real tragedy of loneliness because we're talking about human persons, 
people with names and faces and stories. So for example, and I tell this story every few years because it's such a heartbreaking example, there was a woman named Yvette Vickers who was a B-movie star in the 1950s. Her big role was Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. But over the years, Yvette faded into obscurity and ended up signing autographs at movie conventions. Now, she died in 2010, or at least they think she died in 2010 because they didn't actually discover her body until 2011. One of her neighbors finally noticed the cobwebs and yellowing letters that were gathering in her mailbox. And, and when they found her body, she had been there so long, all by herself, that her body had mummified. But the most haunting thing, at least to me, is that when they found her, the glow of her computer screen was still lighting up the darkened room. Her only connection with other human beings was through movie fans that got in touch with her through the internet. No family, no friends, no neighbors checking up on her, just random connections with people online. She was a tremendously lonely person who died a tragically lonely death. What do we do about loneliness? We're in a series in which we're looking at various psalms and seeing what they show us about how to process our most painful emotions through prayer. And I want to thank everyone for your response to this series. Obviously, it's touched a nerve with people. But I also want to remind us that even though we called this series Praying Our Emotions, this is about more than just our emotions. Because human beings are complex creatures. We've talked about things like depression and anxiety. Those are not just emotional struggles. Those are mental health issues. And so even though we're talking specifically about emotions, this involves way more than just our emotions. Does that make sense? This morning we're talking about loneliness. This psalm that Nicole just read isn't specifically about loneliness, but it has a lot to say to our experience of loneliness and also a lot to say about the kind of culture we have that produces so much loneliness. So this morning as we look at it, let's, let's look at loneliness. And remember, this is not just a, an emotional issue or a mental issue or a relational or social or cultural issue. It's all of those things. So let's explore loneliness this morning by seeing three things that show up in this psalm. We're going to see the longings of loneliness, the challenge of loneliness, and finally the end of loneliness. The longings, the challenge, and the end of loneliness. All right? First, the longings of loneliness. Now, this psalm is primarily about who God is. But that has a lot of implications for our experience of loneliness. So let me show you. This psalm has four stanzas. The first stanza is all about God's knowledge of us. It begins by saying, and the, the author of this psalm was David, the great king of Israel. And he says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. And then he just goes on and on with all these other ways that God knows us. He says that God knows when we sit and when we rise. God discerns when we go out and when we come in. God is familiar with all of our ways. And God even knows before we even speak a word, before the thought is even fully formed in our mind, he says that God knows it completely. This psalm is saying that God knows us infinitely better than we even know ourselves. He knows the most intimate details about us. That's how deeply God knows us. I mean, it's kind of like this, and, and we have medical professional, professionals here who will be able to correct me because I'll probably say this wrong. But if you need to get a bone scan, you get an x-ray. But if you need to get down into the deeper tissue, 
you got to get an MRI. This psalm is saying that God's knowledge of us is like the deepest possible scan. He knows us intimately. But secondly, the second stanza goes on to show us about God's presence in our lives. David goes on to say, where can I flee from your presence? Now, in the Hebrew language, there is no word for presence. What this literally says is, where can I flee from your face? That's what David is saying here. I mean, um, he's, he's talking about God being present with us, and not just, um, just present, but intimately present with us. Because this psalm is, is showing us a God who's more than just an abstract, impersonal force, like, um, like, like an energy field or the force in Star Wars. This, this is a God who is radically, personally present with us. Not only God's knowledge of us, but God's presence with us is radically personal and deeply intimate but that's not all. In the third stanza, it goes on to talk about God's creative power. So David says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. That's a really incredible image. He's saying that, you know, think about, have you ever seen someone knitting? The kind of detail and meticulous attention and care that goes into something like that. This is giving us an image for how God created us, created our bodies, and, and, and not just that, how God created us from day one, because in verse 16, when David says that God saw our unformed body, that, li- that word literally means embryo. But it's not just our body that God created. If you go back to verse 13, David says, you created my inmost being. Now that word inmost being is a word that's essentially referring to our essential self. It's really a way of talking about our identity. And that word created is a word that means to purchase or acquire something. You could actually translate this verse by saying, God, you made my true self to belong to you. My true self to belong to you. Now, why is all of this so important for us? Why is loneliness so painful? What are we longing for when we experience loneliness? The psalm shows us. It shows us that, that we are longing for certain things. We are longing for God, for somebody to know us all the way down. We're longing for someone to be present with us and never abandon us. And we're longing um, for a sense of belonging somewhere, that there's a place where we really belong. Knowledge, presence, and belonging. We long for those things, and those are the core longings we have in our experience of loneliness. Now listen, at least in my experience, and maybe this is yours too, a lot of times um, it's easy to feel embarrassed or ashamed about these longings that we have. Like maybe somehow we should be more self-sufficient. Maybe it's easy to feel weak because, of, of the, because we need these things so intensely. I, I don't know about you, but I feel that way a lot of times. But this psalm is showing us that we were created to need these things. So, for instance, in his sermon on shame a few weeks ago, Matt mentioned Brene Brown. Brene Brown is a sociologist, researcher, and best-selling author. She's also an expert on shame and vulnerability. In a TED Talk she gave about 10 years ago, she said this. She said, connection is what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. This is what it's all about. What we, and when she says we, she's talking about her fellow researchers and herself. She says, what we know is that the ability to feel connected, neurobiologically, that's how we're wired. It's why we're here. 
So she's saying, just at a sheer scientific level, um, our longings to be known and for the presence of others and um, for a sense of belonging, that's how we're hardwired as human beings. But this psalm is showing us it's more than just a scientific thing, that we were actually created by God with these longings. That means that far from feeling weak or ashamed of these longings, One of the healthiest things we can do and really one of the most urgent things we need to do is embrace these longings. Many of you know I was an alcoholic and drug addict for many years. I got sober when I was 28 years old. And I don't think I've ever shared this in a sermon before, but one of the main things that drove my addiction was loneliness. And not just loneliness, but feeling bad about myself for being so lonely. Can you relate to that? I I still remember... When I was in my early 30s, I was a relatively new Christian, and yet I still struggled with loneliness and feeling bad about my loneliness. I still remember the day I was reading through Genesis chapter 2, and I read verse 18, which says that God looked at Adam, the first human being, and he said, it is not good for man to be alone. And it hit me, I, I realized that, wow, before sin and evil ever entered the world, that that part of God's creational, his good creational design of us as human beings is our need for connection and belonging to other people. And so even though I was still lonely at that time, that encouraged me because I realized this is not a flaw in the design. It's not an embarrassing weakness. This is how we were created. So this psalm is taking these longings, putting them up on a billboard and saying, you were made for this. It's teaching us to embrace these longings, and yet we still struggle with loneliness, don't we? Why is that? Well, that leads to our next point. We've just seen the longings of loneliness, but secondly, we need to look at the challenge of loneliness. We just got through um, looking at the fact that um, God knows everything about us. Isn't that wonderful? Don't you just love the idea that there's at least one being out there from whom absolutely nothing in your life is hidden. Doesn't that just give you warm fuzzies? (laughs) Not if you really think about it. (laughs) How would you feel if we put your picture and your name up on the screen here, and then we just listed every single thought that has gone through your mind since you woke up this morning? (laughs) Who would volunteer for that? (laughs) Anybody? (laughs) None of us. Why? Well, this psalm shows us. You know, David... You know, he goes through this whole first stanza talking about how deeply God knows him. And then what does he say? He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Now, let me just tell you, this is not a good thing he's saying. When he says, this is too wonderful for me, what he's saying is, God, you knowing me this deeply freaks me out. It's overwhelming to me. I I can't deal with this. I'm starting to shut down. And so what does he do as a result of that? You know, I love... Just how gut-wrenchingly honest this is about the human condition. You know, one of our deepest longings as human beings is that we would be known all the way down and loved all the way in. We want to be known all the way down and loved all the way in. And yet one of our darkest fear as human beings is that if anybody really knew us all the way down, they couldn't possibly love us all the way in. They they would reject us. What do we do when we experience that? We hide. We hide what we think. We hide what we feel. We hide who we are. And especially we hide all of that 
from God. And we see that in this psalm as well. David just got through talking about how deeply God knows him. And what does he say? Where can I flee from your presence? Where can I flee from your face? Basically, he's saying, God, you knowing me this deeply freaks me out so much, I want to get away. I want to hide. I can't deal with it. I got to get away from you. Friends, what is David saying? What is this showing us? Here's what this means. It means that our fear of being rejected is greater than our fear of being alone. Maybe not all the time, but most of the time, our fear of being rejected is greater than our fear of being alone. In other words, a lot of times, we'd rather feel a little bit lonely than, than be rejected by other people. And by the way, that does not mean that we don't um, le- look for relationships with other people. It doesn't mean that we purposefully seek out isolation. Of course we don't. We long for relationships with other people. Isolation was one of the most difficult things during the shutdown. But what this does mean is that we could be surrounded by other people, and yet we never completely unveil. There are always going to be parts of us we hide. So even if we're surrounded by other people, we're always going to experience loneliness because our fear of being rejected is greater than our fear of being alone. Friends, one of the main things this psalm is showing us is that all of our problems in this world ultimately are connected back to our relationship with God. And not just our relationship to God as individuals, but as a society, as a culture. What do I mean by that? I don't know if you noticed when Nicole was reading the psalm that towards the end, David kind of takes a dark turn. He says, if only God, you would slay the wicked. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? David is condemning and excoriating his enemies. Now, at one level, this is right because evil demands justice, right? And we see that impulse everywhere in our culture. But at another level, now that Jesus Christ has entered the world, um, Christians aren't really supposed to pray this way anymore because on the cross, Jesus didn't pray for his enemy's destruction. He prayed for their forgiveness. But here's what all of this really means for us today as we're talking about loneliness. Do you remember those three longings that we saw just a bit ago? We have longings for knowledge, for presence, and for belonging. What does our culture teach us about belonging? Well, um, first of all, it, it says that we live in the first culture in the history of the world that says that there's nothing beyond this world. There is no God. There is no sacred order. So if there is no God to create us, then there's no God for us to belong to. Therefore, we belong to ourselves. Self-belonging, that is one of the core ideas at the heart of our culture. So for instance, Alan Noble is a great Christian writer. He, He just came out with a powerful new book called You Are Not Your Own. The main idea, his main premise is that our culture is based on this idea. I am not, I am my own and I belong to myself. Our culture is based on the idea that says I am my own and I belong to myself. So even if you believe in God, this idea is so deep in our culture. This is the cultural soup we all swim in. Even if you're a Christian, this affects your life. And Alan Noble goes through the book and he shows all the different ways this affects our life. If we belong to ourselves, he says, then we, each one of us, have the responsibility of justifying my own existence, of creating my own meaning, of defining my own 
identity, and we're going to do a deep dive on this one in a couple of weeks. And lastly, we have the responsibility for constructing our own morality. We live in a culture that says because we belong to ourselves, each one of us as individuals is responsible for all of these things, right? Why is that? It's because self-belonging is the default assumption of our culture. So even though human beings have always experienced some level of loneliness, why is it that our culture, our age, is experiencing epidemic levels of loneliness? It's because if we don't belong to God, we belong to ourselves. That's the idea at the heart of our culture. And so even though um, uh, um, we, um, we long for relationship and we long to escape loneliness, if we belong to ourselves, if our culture is based on that level of relational breakdown with God, then of course that's going to lead to relational breakdown with other people. Now listen, maybe some of you are exploring faith, maybe you're spiritually curious, um, which means maybe you're skeptical about what I just said, which is okay. Believe me, I get it. Because we have this maxim, this principle that we always say it's very, um, it's true. Correlation does not equal causation, right? Have you ever heard that? Correlation isn't this, it doesn't equal causation. In other words, just because we live in a culture of, of, uh, of self-belonging and we live in a culture um, of epidemic loneliness doesn't necessarily mean that those two things are connected. But if you're open to the possibility that maybe, just maybe, there is a connection between those two things, then this psalm offers us a hope and a way forward, and that leads to our last point. We've seen the longings of loneliness. We've just looked at the challenge of loneliness. But lastly, we need to see the end of loneliness. Because if there is a connection between our relationship with God and our relationship with each other, then the end of our loneliness with other people is going to be the end of our loneliness with God. It's going to begin and end with our loneliness with God. How do we get there? This psalm shows us. So remember, if we go back to the psalm that David was talking about, um, how God's knowledge of him freaks him out, so much so that he says this, where can I flee from your presence? Now, why does he say that? We already kind of looked at that, but here's why he's saying this. It's because true intimacy requires radical vulnerability. True intimacy, it, it depends on, it begins with, it requires radical vulnerability. David's impulse to get away from God is basically an impulse to get away from vulnerability. He doesn't want to go there. He doesn't want to be vulnerable. So he's trying to get away from it. Do you realize what this means? And as we continue through this, David changes. Something changes throughout the course of this psalm because at first he doesn't want to be that vulnerable and he's trying to get away from God, but something changes as he goes through the psalm. He ends up saying this a little bit later, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, even the darkness will not be dark to you, for darkness is as light to you. In the Bible, darkness is an image for being lost and isolated and abandoned in a place of absolute danger and utter horror. And yet, here's David, and he's saying, God, even when I go into a dark place, I know that your right hand will hold me fast. You will never let me go. And the more that reality begins to break through to him, the, the, the less he's fearing rejection, and, and the more willing he is, the more open he is to becoming vulnerable. 
And you see that as he goes throughout the psalm, so that a little bit later on, he can say this, how precious, God, to me are your thoughts. How precious to me are your thoughts. What he's saying is, God, there's nothing more precious, the most precious thing in the world, more precious than gold, diamonds, rubies, and emeralds, is your knowledge of me. He, he's at a place where he's beginning to say, God, I welcome it. I want it in my life. I want you to know me like this. And we can see that's exactly what he's experiencing because at the very end of the psalm, he says this. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. He welcomes it now. He wants it now. He has true intimacy and true vulnerability. How did he get there? Remember a little bit ago we were talking about Genesis chapter 2? At the very end of Genesis 2, it says that the first human beings were naked and not ashamed. That means that they were completely seen, completely known, completely vulnerable, and yet there was no fear of rejection. There was no shame. There was no hiding. They had perfect intimacy and vulnerability with each other because they had it with God. But then in Genesis chapter 3, the devil comes and says, hey, if you eat the fruit of this tree, then you won't have to depend on God anymore. You will, um, you will be your own gods. You know, just a bit ago we said uh, David is talking about people who rebel against God. The first humans were the first rebels. They didn't want to be vulnerable anymore. They didn't want to belong to God anymore. They wanted to belong to themselves. And as a result, it says that the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence, literally the face, of God, but the Lord God called and said, where are you? They hid from God, but God came looking for them. When God says, where are you? That's an invitation to them to come and be honest and vulnerable about what happened, but it's also a way for God to express his longings for us. He's saying, where are you? I want you back. I miss you. It's almost as if God is expressing his loneliness for us. Are you beginning to see what's going on here? We long for intimacy, and yet we have lost intimacy with God because we don't want to be vulnerable. We want to belong to ourselves. And yet, here's where the gospel begins to come in. Because it would be easy to imagine a God who would stand off to the side, fold his arms, tap his toes, and say to the first humans, all right, you want intimacy with me? Then it's your move. You have to take the first step and become vulnerable first in order to restore intimacy with me. That's a very religious way of approaching God, right? It, it's, it's all on your shoulders. You, it's your first move. You've got to take the first step. But the Bible shows us, the gospel shows us, a God, he takes the first step. He makes the first move. He becomes vulnerable himself first in order to restore intimacy with us. And the ultimate place God did that was on the cross of Jesus Christ. Because what is the cross? The cross is, is, is the place of ultimate darkness and therefore ultimate loneliness. Because the cross is the ultimate place of being lost and abandoned by God. True intimacy requires radical vulnerability. No one became more vulnerable than Jesus on the cross. He was stripped naked. He was utterly exposed. There's nothing more vulnerable than having your hands and feet nailed to a cross 
Jesus became radically vulnerable, but he lost his intimacy with God so that we who flee from vulnerability could regain intimacy with God. Jesus made the first move. In fact, when he was on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Basically, Jesus was saying, God, where are you? I can't see you anymore. I've lost your face. I've lost your presence. God the Father let go of Jesus' hand and let him free fall into utter darkness so that God could grab hold of our hand that we would never be alone in the dark. Friends, do you realize what this means? Uh, Just a moment ago, we said that um, our fear of being rejected is greater than our fear of being alone. But now, through Jesus, our experience of being accepted is greater than our fear of being rejected. Our experience, our joy, our delight at being accepted by God now becomes greater than our fear of being rejected by God and by others. The more you experience the intimacy with God that comes from Jesus' vulnerability, the more you are now able to experience intimacy and vulnerability, not just with God, but with other human beings. That doesn't mean you will never struggle with loneliness anymore. We still live in a broken, fallen world. And as long as we live in this world, we'll continue to struggle with loneliness. But let me encourage you in just a couple of ways. First, when we pray or sing this psalm, whether by ourselves or with other people, it's a way of pressing the reality of God's presence more deeply into our hearts. We live in a world that's always looking for a quick fix, right? I I hate to break it to you, but prayer is not a quick fix. And yet, I also want to guarantee you, through my own personal experience, that the more you persist in prayer, whether it's praying the Psalms or whether it's waiting silently before God or some other form of prayer, the more you do that, over time, God shows up. He meets you. He changes you. It doesn't mean you'll never experience loneliness. It does mean that there will always be a hand to hold you when you're alone in the dark. But secondly, um, The more we experience intimacy and vulnerability with God, the more we're going to be able to risk vulnerability with other people. So that in addition to prayer, I would encourage everyone to get connected to a community group. Especially if you're lonely, we have groups at this church that would be delighted to welcome you. And I just want to tell you, they're not perfect people. We continue to let each other down and and fail each other as human beings. And yet, the more, hopefully, that we're growing in repentance and forgiveness and love and grace, the more we're experiencing together the kind of intimacy and vulnerability for which God created us. Because here's the thing. We all need this. And, And we need it not just with God. We were created for relationship not only with God. He created us for relationship with other people. We can't over-spiritualize this so that we just say, well, all I need is God and it doesn't matter if other people are in my life. No, we need other people in our life. We're created for that. We're all going to experience loneliness in this life, whether you're single or even if you're married. Ask married people if they ever get lonely. But all of us, the intimacy we long for is available to all of us, whether you're married or whether you're single. I still remember years ago when I first became a Christian at that church I mentioned just a little bit ago. When I first started going to that church, I met a couple of other guys my same age, and we just started getting together in each other's homes once a week to share a meal together. We would eat together, laugh together, 
weep together, <laughs> share our deepest struggles together, and pray together. To this day, I, that's still one of the richest and most intimate experiences I've ever had with other human beings. It didn't take my loneliness away completely, but, the, but when you belong to Jesus, even if you're in a dark place all by yourself, it means that, that there's going to be more there for you than just the glow of a screen. It means that there's always a hand that is there to hold you when you're alone in the dark, and he will never let you go. Let's pray. Abba, Father, we thank you this morning. Um, Lord, that you delight in physical, embodied relationship and presence that you not only created us for relationship with yourself, but for relationship with each other. And yet, Lord, we lament to you this morning that we struggle with this. Father, we long to be known all the way down and loved all the way in, but Father, we don't experience that. And, and we ask this morning that you would draw us more deeply into an assurance of your love and your acceptance in our lives, that the, the more we experience your acceptance, the more we would lose our fear of rejection, and that your acceptance would be greater than our fear of rejection. Father, um, we live in a broken world, and we're going to experience loneliness. We pray this morning that you would help us not only to experience intimacy and vulnerability with you, but with each other, and that we would uh, Father, to the extent that we are able, that we would go out of our way to extend intimacy and vulnerability and love and belonging and welcome to others, Father. Uh, if, if it can't happen in the church, Lord, where can it happen? Would you strengthen and empower this church to be a place of, of knowledge and presence and belonging, that we would experience some measure of satisfaction for our deepest longings and loneliness, Lord, for we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.